Chapter Eight of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. Several weeks went by during which Martin Eden studied his grammar, reviewed the books on etiquette, and read voraciously the books that caught his fancy. Of his own class, he saw nothing. The girls of the Lotus Club wondered what had become of him, and worried Jim with questions. And some of the fellows who put on the glove at Riley's were glad that Martin came no more. He made another discovery of treasure trove in the library. As the grammar had shown him the tie ribs of language, so that book showed him the tie ribs of poetry, and he began to learn meter and construction and form, beneath the beauty he loved finding the why and wherefore of that beauty. Another modern book he found treated poetry as a representative art, treated it exhaustively, with copious illustrations from the best in literature. Never had he read fiction with so keen zest as he studied these books, and his fresh mind, untaxed for twenty years, and impelled by maturity of desire, gripped hold of what he read with a virility unusual to the student mind. When he looked back now from his vantage ground, the old world he had known, the world of land and sea and ships, of sailor-men and harpy women, seemed a very small world. And yet it blended in with this new world and expanded. His mind made for unity, and he was surprised when at first he began to see points of contact between the two worlds. And he was ennobled as well by the loftiness of thought and beauty he found in the books. This led him to believe more firmly than ever that up above, in society like Ruth and her family, all men and women thought these thoughts and lived them. Down below where he lived was the ignoble, and he wanted to purge himself of the ignoble that had soiled all his days, and to rise to that sublimated realm where dwelt the upper classes. All his childhood and youth had been troubled by a vague unrest. He had never known what he wanted, but he had wanted something that he had hunted vainly for until he met Ruth. And now this unrest had become sharp and painful, and he knew at last, clearly and definitely, that it was beauty and intellect and love that he must have. During those several weeks he saw Ruth half a dozen times, and each time was an added inspiration. She helped him with his English, corrected his pronunciation, and started him on arithmetic. But their intercourse was not all devoted to elementary study. He had seen too much of life, and his mind was too matured, to be wholly content with fractions, cube-root, parsing, and analysis. And there were times when their conversation turned on other themes, the last poetry he had read, the latest poet she had studied. And when she read aloud to him her favorite passages, he ascended to the topmost heaven of delight. Never, in all the women he had heard speak, had he heard a voice like hers. The least sound of it was a stimulus to his love, and he thrilled and throbbed with every word she uttered. It was the quality of it, the repose, and the musical modulation, the soft, rich, indefinable product of culture and a gentle soul. As he listened to her, there rang in his ears of his memory the harsh cries of barbarian women and of hags, and, in lesser degrees of harshness, the strident voices of working women and of the girls of his own class. Then the chemistry of vision would begin to work, and they would troop in view across his mind, each by contrast, multiplying Ruth's glories. 
Then, too, his bliss was heightened by the knowledge that her mind was comprehending what she read, and was quivering with appreciation of the beauty of the written thought. She read to him much of the princess, and often he saw her eyes swimming with tears, so finely was her aesthetic nature strung. At such moments her own emotions elevated him till he was as a god, and, as he gazed at her and listened, he seemed gazing on the face of life and reading its deepest secrets. And then, becoming aware of the heights of exquisite sensibility he attained, he decided that this was love, and that love was the greatest thing in the world. And in review would pass along the corridors of memory all previous thrills and burnings he had known, the drunkenness of wine, the caresses of women, the rough play and give-and-take of physical contests, and they seemed trivial and mean compared with this sublime ardor he now enjoyed. The situation was obscured to Ruth. She had never had any experiences of the heart. Her only experiences in such matters were of the books, where the facts of ordinary day were translated by fancy into a fairy realm of unreality. And she little knew that this rough sailor was creeping into her heart and storing there pent forces that would some day burst forth and surge through her in waves of fire. She did not know the actual fire of love. Her knowledge of love was purely theoretical, and she conceived of it as lambent flame, gentle as the fall of dew or the ripple of quiet water, and cool as the velvet dark of summer nights. Her idea of love was more that of placid affection, serving the loved one softly in an atmosphere, flower-scented and dim-lighted, of ethereal calm. She did not dream of the volcanic convulsions of love, its scorching heat and sterile wastes of parched ashes. She knew neither her own potencies nor the potencies of the world, and the deeps of life were to her seas of illusion. The conjugal affection of her father and mother constituted her ideal of love affinity, and she looked forward some day to emerging, without shock or friction, into that same quiet sweetness of existence with a loved one. So it was that she looked upon Martin Eden as a novelty, a strange individual, and she identified with novelty and strangeness the effects he produced upon her. It was only natural. In similar ways she had experienced unusual feelings when she looked at wild animals in the menagerie, or when she witnessed a storm of wind, or shuddered at the bright ribbed lightning. There was something cosmic in such things, and there was something cosmic in him. He came to her breathing of large airs and great spaces. The blaze of tropic suns was in his face, and in his swelling resilient muscles was the primordial vigor of life. He was marred and scarred by that mysterious world of rough men and rougher deeds, the outposts of which began beyond her horizon. He was untamed, wild, and in secret ways her vanity was touched by the fact that he came so mildly to her hand. Likewise, she was stirred by the common impulse to tame the wild thing. It was an unconscious impulse and farthest from her thoughts that her desire was to re-thumb the clay of him into a likeness of her father's image, which image she believed to be the finest in the world. Nor was there any way, out of her inexperience, for her to know that the cosmic feel she caught of him was that most cosmic of things, love, 
which with equal power drew men and women together across the world, compelled stags to kill each other in the rutting season, and drove even the elements irresistibly to unite. His swift development was a source of surprise and interest. She detected unguessed finenesses in him that seemed to bud day by day, like flowers in congenial soil. She read Browning aloud to him, and was often puzzled by the strange interpretations he gave to mooted passages. It was beyond her to realize that, out of his experience of men and women and life, his interpretations were far more frequently correct than hers. His conceptions seemed naive to her, though she was often fired by his daring flights of comprehension, whose orbit path was so wide among the stars that she could not follow, and could only sit and thrill to the impact of unguessed power. Then she played to him, no longer at him, and probed him with music that sank to depths beyond her plumb-line. His nature opened to music as a flower to the sun, and the transition was quick from his working-class ragtime and jingles to her classical display pieces that she knew nearly by heart. Yet he betrayed a democratic fondness for Wagner, and the Tannhauser overture, when she had given him the clue to it, claimed him as nothing else she played. In an immediate way it personified his life. All his past was the Venusberg motif, while her he identified somehow with the Pilgrim's Chorus motif, and from the exalted state this elevated him to, he swept onward and upward, into that vast shadow-realm of spirit-groping, where good and evil war eternally. Sometimes he questioned, and induced in her mild temporary doubts as to the correctness of her own definitions and conceptions of music, but her singing he did not question. It was too wholly her, and he sat always amazed at the divine melody of her pure soprano voice, and he could not help but contrast it with the weak pipings and shrill quaverings of factory girls. Ill-nourished and untrained, and with the raucous shriekings from gin-cracked throats of the women of the seaport towns, she enjoyed singing and playing to him. In truth, it was the first time she had ever had a human soul to play with, and the plastic clay of him was a delight to mold. For she thought she was molding it, and her intentions were good. Besides, it was pleasant to be with him. He did not repel her. That first repulsion had been really a fear of her undiscovered self, and the fear had gone to sleep. Though she did not know it, she had a feeling in him of proprietary right. Also, he had a tonic effect upon her. She was studying hard at the university, and it seemed to strengthen her to emerge from the dusty books and have a fresh sea-breeze of his personality blow upon her. Strength! Strength was what she needed, and he gave it to her in generous measure. To come into the same room with him, or to meet him at the door, was to take heart of life. And when he had gone, she would return to her books with a keener zest and fresh store of energy. She knew her browning, but it had never sunk into her that it was an awkward thing to play with souls. As her interest in Martin increased, the remodeling of his life became a passion with her. "'There is Mr. Butler,' she said one afternoon, when grammar and arithmetic and poetry had been put aside. He had comparatively no advantages at first. His father had been a bank cashier, and he lingered for years, dying of consumption in Arizona, 
so that when he was dead, Mr. Butler, Charles Butler, he was called, found himself alone in the world. His father had come from Australia, you know, and so he had no relatives in California. He went to work in a printing office, I have heard him tell of it many times, and he got three dollars a week at first. His income today is at least thirty thousand a year. How did he do it? He was honest and faithful and industrious and economical. He denied himself the enjoyments that most boys indulge in. He made it a point to save so much every week, no matter what he had to do without in order to save it. Of course, he was soon earning more than three dollars a week, and as his wages increased he saved more and more. He worked in the daytime, and at night he went to night school. He had his eyes fixed always on the future. Later on he went to night high school. When he was only seventeen, he was earning excellent wages at setting type, but he was ambitious. He wanted a career, not a livelihood, and he was content to make immediate sacrifices for his ultimate gain. He decided upon the law, and entered father's office as an office boy. Think of that, and got only four dollars a week. But he had learned how to be economical, and out of that four dollars he went on saving money. She paused for breath, and to note how Martin was receiving it. His face was lighted up with interest in the youthful struggles of Mr. Butler, but there was a frown upon his face as well. "'I'd say they was pretty hard times for a young fellow,' he remarked. Four dollars a week! How could he live on it? You can bet he didn't have any frills. Why, I pay five dollars a week for board now.' and there's nothing exciting about it, you can lay to that. He must have lived like a dog. The food he ate. He cooked for himself, she interrupted, on a little kerosene stove. The food he ate must have been worse than what a sailor gets on the worst feeding deep-water ships, than which there ain't much that can be possibly worse. But think of him now, she cried enthusiastically. Think of what his income affords him. His early denials are paid for a thousandfold. Martin looked at her sharply. "'There's one thing I'll bet you,' he said, "'and it is that Mr. Butler is nothing gay-hearted now in his fat days. He fed himself like that for years and years on a boy's stomach, and I bet his stomach's none too good now for it.' Her eyes dropped before his searching gaze. "'I'll bet he's got dyspepsia right now,' Martin challenged. "'Yes, he has,' she confessed. "'But—' "'And I bet,' Martin dashed on, that he's solemn and serious as an old owl, and doesn't care a rap for a good time, for all his thirty thousand a year. And I bet he's not particularly joyful at seeing others have a good time. Ain't I right?" She nodded her head in agreement, and hastened to explain. But he is not that kind of man. By nature he is sober and serious. He always was that. You can bet he was, Martin proclaimed three dollars a week and four dollars a week, and a young boy cooking for himself on an oil burner and laying up money, working all day and studying all night, just working and never playing, never having a good time, and never learning how to have a good time. Of course his thirty thousand came along too late. His sympathetic imagination was flashing upon his inner sight of all the thousands of details of the boy's existence, and of his narrow spiritual development into a thirty-thousand-dollar-a-year man. With the swiftness and wide-reaching of multitudinous thought, Charles Butler's whole life was telescoped upon his vision. "'Do you know,' he added, "'I feel sorry for Mr. Butler. He was too young to know better, but he robbed himself of life for the sake of thirty thousand a year that's clean wasted upon him. Why, thirty thousand lump sum, 
wouldn't buy for him right now what ten cents he was layin' up would have bought him when he was a kid, in the way of candy and peanuts, or a seed in nigger heaven. It was just such uniqueness of points of view that startled Ruth. Not only were they new to her, and contrary to her own beliefs, but she always felt in them germs of truth that threatened to unseat or modify her own convictions. Had she been fourteen instead of twenty-four, she might have been changed by them, but she was twenty-four, conservative by nature and upbringing, and already crystallized into the cranny of life where she had been born and formed. It was true his bizarre judgments troubled her in the moments when they were uttered, but she ascribed them to his novelty of type and strangeness of living, and they were soon forgotten. Nevertheless, while she disapproved of them, the strength of their utterance and the flashing eyes and earnestness of face that accompanied them always thrilled her and drew her toward him. She would never have guessed that this man, who had come from beyond her horizon, was, in such moments, flashing on beyond her horizon with wider and deeper concepts. Her own limits were the limits of her horizon, but limited minds can recognize limitations only in others and so she felt that her outlook was very wide indeed, and that where his conflicted with hers marked his limitations, and she dreamed of helping him to see as she saw, of widening his horizon until it was identified with hers. "'But I have not finished my story,' she said. He worked, so father says, as no other office boy he ever had. Mr. Butler was always eager to work. He was never late, and he was usually in the office a few minutes before his regular time. And yet he saved his time. Every spare moment was devoted to study. He studied bookkeeping and typewriting, and he paid for lessons in shorthand by dictating at night to a court reporter who needed practice. He quickly became a clerk, and he made himself invaluable. Father appreciated him and saw that he was bound to rise. It was on father's suggestion that he went to law college. He became a lawyer and hardly was he back in the office when father took him in as junior partner. He is a great man. He refused the United States Senate several times, and father says he could become a justice of the Supreme Court any time a vacancy occurs, if he wants to. Such a life is an inspiration to all of us. It shows us that a man with will may rise superior to his environment. He is a great man, Martin said sincerely but it seemed to him that there was something in the recital that jarred upon his sense of beauty and life. He did not find an adequate motive in Mr. Butler's life of pinching and privation. Had he done it for love of a woman, or for attainment of beauty, Martin would have understood. God's own mad lover should do anything for the kiss, but not for thirty thousand dollars a year. He was dissatisfied with Mr. Butler's career. There was something paltry about it, after all. Thirty thousand a year was all right, but dyspepsia and inability to be humanly happy robbed such a princely income of all its value. Much of this he strove to express to Ruth, and shocked her and made it clear that more remodeling was necessary. Hers was that common insularity of mind that makes human creatures believe that their color, creed, and politics are best and right, and that other human creatures scattered over the world are less fortunately placed than they. It was the same insularity of mind that made the ancient Jew thank God he was not born a woman, and sent the modern missionary God substituting to the ends of the earth. And it made Ruth desire to shape this man from the other crannies of life 
into the likeness of the men who lived in her particular cranny of life. End of chapter 8